with the Polar Knight. And I'm Heather with Tangled Bee Crafts. And together we are the Not-So-Crafty Gorgons. So, Jesse, I am really glad you decided to spearhead this one with your experience actually running a craft-based business, a polar night. I think you've had an opportunity to see firsthand or hear from someone directly a lot of the issues that sort of stem from capitalism in the crafting world. If you're comfortable, can you tell us a bit about the journey that brought you to ultimately taking the plunge into a craft-based business and what that experience has been like? Yeah, so actually, it's that thing that so many crafters are going to relate to immediately, which is where I made jewelry, I would wear it, and family and friends were like, you should sell that, you should sell that, and I had people that would see me in the store and just buy things off my neck or buy things off my ears, which I was always a little weirded out by that, because like, you know, it's been in my ears, but apparently people do not care, and they would just buy them, and so that's kind of how I got started. And I made an Etsy and got my first sale after like two weeks of being on Etsy, which was actually really good. Like a lot of people have to wait so much longer than that. I just want to put that out there. Like I have been selling for years and my sales are in the hundreds and that's a pretty typical experience. Most of my sales have been like in person to friends and family or people that just word of mouth. I lived in a town that was somewhat of a tourist town, like not completely, but I sold to a lot of tourists who were like, oh, Alaska, that sounds like a fun thing to buy. Like I'll buy something made from someone local. So that's where I got my start with it. I know that before we were talking a little bit about the fact that you subscribe to Andy Warhol's way of thinking. You want to talk a little bit more about that? I definitely do. So, you know, like I said, it sounds like there's so many people that they just have this thing where their friends and family are like, you should sell that. And it can be so obnoxious, especially if you don't want to. And it's like, you, it feels like you can't enjoy your craft without someone saying, oh man, you should just sell that. And I will admit, I love a good side hustle. It is one of the things that motivates me. I have a lot of fun coming up with ideas, developing concepts, making things, doing the marketing and doing all of that. Not everybody loves that. Uh, but one of the things, like you said, Andy Warhol, I totally subscribe to his idea that good business is good art. In fact, like, okay, I'm going to go a little off track here. I had an argument with a professor in college about what is art, and this could be its own episode, honestly, but he was like, art always has to have meaning. I so disagree with that in a very core way. I think sometimes art is just something that happens because art, and this is my perspective, you can argue about this in however way you want to philosophize. I philosoph often. Um... (laughs) But I would say art is anything that we don't do for the sole purpose of existing. If it is something that you do and it goes beyond the basics of what you need to do to exist and to keep your life functions going, I believe that that could in some way fall under art. So if you're making food and you are not just making plain, something plain, boiled, whatever, because you need to make it safe, but you're adding rosemary, I fully believe that the spices that you're adding to your food is a form of art, and that's why there are culinary arts. I fully believe that if you are decorating your home in any way, shape, or form beyond the need to have a shelter, that is art. And I know people will disagree with me on that, and that's fine, but I like this broad definition of art because it's inviting. It allows people to call what they do art, and I think we need to have more of that and more understanding surrounding what art is. So, sorry, I got a little off topic there. No, you're perfect. I I think it's super funny the way that you describe that because when I do the portion of the episode on psychology and crafting down the road, one of the things I'll be covering is Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which actually kind of goes into the layers of needs, including where art falls into that. So I'm super excited that you brought that up in this episode. Oh, awesome. It's something I think about a lot because, again, I had an argument with a professor and he was just convinced he was right and would not hear my opinion. Academics. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Assholes. (laughs) Yeah. No. So I, I think it's interesting. So for those of you listening, we we did a survey that we posted on these different Facebook groups. And what we found was kind of this trend. So one of the questions we asked was actually about the formula for like, how do you sell your products, your finished products? And it was interesting how many people in that response and then also in the response on what else do you want to say about capitalism and crafting, how many people feel like 
they're compelled to sell. Like they have to, like family and friends don't allow them that space to create just for the sake of creating because it brings them joy. Like it's not enough for you to be joyous in what you're doing. You have to also be making a profit. And I think that's a super sad aspect of crafting. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's part of why, you know, I enjoy that process But I've also gotten burnt out on it. I've taken breaks with my business because you are doing, I mean, think about a big business. They have a marketing person. They have someone who works in shipping. They have someone who works in quality control. They have someone who is, you know, maybe testing their products. When you're a small business owner, you are doing all of those things and wearing all of those hats. And that is so much energy that a a side hustle can feel like four full-time jobs. Oh, yeah. It can feel so overwhelming. Uh, And so that's why, you know, getting into the pricing thing. So I just, I would actually like you to read a couple of responses if you don't mind. Like, do you mind delving into a couple of those? Because I think there's some interesting ones and they bring up some good points. And then I'll kind of talk about my ideas on pricing and kind of what the general consensus standard is for craft pricing. Yeah, so I think, you know, just to kind of put this out there, all the responses are anonymous um, and we don't, we're not going to put judgments or values on what everybody responded. This is us approaching it with curiosity and just kind of interest. One response was, I don't have an equation. Times are tough, so I price with the least I'm willing to make Uh, because you got to live, right? Another was uh, product cost plus any other relevant costs plus a reasonable hourly wage times how many hours I think should have been spent if I worked faster. Interesting that like speeding it up. I kind of guesstimate. It depends on the craft. With crochet or weaving, I would love to pay myself materials and time but often end up selling at cost. Materials and time. Materials should be a small percentage of how much to charge. Consumers should know that they're primarily paying for labor and expertise. And I then, like that response a lot. Not, like, not that I'm putting, but I just really like the, the, the mentioning expertise because that is a huge piece of it. When people see work at a craft fair and they say, oh, I can do that. It's like, well, you might be capable of doing it, but have you spent 10 years doing it? Right. Right, and all the classes that we had to pay for to attend to achieve those skills. Exactly. Another response was hourly rate times hours plus supplies times two plus shipping if heavy item equals retail price with free shipping. If people ask to buy something from me, I usually just ask for price of materials. I honestly don't know. I don't understand how anybody can make money selling their work. Fair. Super fair. Generally, for crochet, I double the price of the yarn and add $20. I don't sell cross-stitch because it's too time-consuming and not worth it. I have no idea. Probably supplies plus $15 of hour of labor. I don't sell. Hey, and I'm doing random voices just to, like, distinguish the responses. So I'm not making fun of anybody who actually posted this. Yeah, I figured as much. I like that. <laughs> Wing it, usually have an idea of a price range, taking into account supplies, but not always time and decide when it's done. I don't. I've seen all the charts, but when I've sold, I would try to find other local sellers and be at around that price point. It was always way too low, and people would literally pick things up and be like, this is perfect, I love it. Then leave. (laughs) I mean, that is basically, yeah. I've been, I mean, I'm an established seller and I've been doing it for a long time and I've had some really successful fairs and at every fair there's, there are those people. Like, so relatable. Yeah. Most of my finished item sales are hand-dyed yarn. I calculate the cost of my raw materials plus the time it takes me on average to finish one batch and add those together to pay myself for the work of making. Then I double this value to Keystone. That's interesting. And pay myself for the work of marketing and selling. So it sounds like there's a lot of different ideas surrounding pricing. And some of it seems to be contingent on the type of craft that someone is doing. Because some things are very labor and time intensive. And it sounds like charging an hourly rate maybe feels a little bit too much for some people, I'm assuming. Yeah, I think that was a trend that we noticed in even in this next response is this is the problem. Do I charge what I should be worth in materials and time and make it so no one I love would ever be able to afford anything I make without selling a body part? Or do I undercharge and arrange the hobby crafters because I am undercutting their, I feel, excessively high prices? 
So yeah, I think it's interesting how there is such a wide range of feeling behind this and how that might be moving that price point target. So actually, I can speak pretty highly, heavily towards this topic, honestly. I've done a lot of research about pricing. I've sat with my pricing for a decade now, and I've gone back and I've gone forth, and I have a lot to say about it. So what I would say is that last response is perfect for me to jump off of because there is a sort of accepted standard for craft pricing. And mind you, it will change a little bit depending on what you're doing, depending on what your craft is. I work with wire and jewelry primarily. So keep in mind, my prices are going to be based upon that. Some things are more labor intensive and you really realistically cannot charge $25 an hour for your labor making some things. You just, I mean, you can, I just, there is a point at which people will not buy things. Unfortunately, do you deserve to make that much? Absolutely. When I see something that is priced in a range that is high, I don't necessarily see it as a deterrent because I am a creator and I understand why it is priced that way. I've also worked enough with fiber craft sewing, uh, things like that, and I have enough friends that I know the amount of work that goes in. But the layperson doesn't have that information. They're walking in blind. So they just see the price tag. And they also are familiar with Walmart and Target. So unfortunately, you are being compared to machines or uh, slave labor, things like that. So unfortunately, not every craft will be able to follow this formula, but it is a good place to start. And I can explain why. So the accepted sort of standard is the cost of your materials plus your time. So whatever, you know, your hourly rate times the number of hours gives you your time cost. And then that gives you your wholesale price. It covers your basic expenses. It pays you and it covers your materials. Then if you're going to be selling retail, you take that price and you do it times two. And so even if you're selling from an online storefront that is technically retail, you have costs, you have overhead, you have fees, you have all kinds of other things that you need to do. If you are selling on Etsy, they do encourage you to offer free shipping over, I believe, $35 now. I can check into that, but I'm pretty sure they they encourage the free shipping by boosting you up in their sales. So you're going to want to do that, honestly, if you're capable of it. So you add a couple dollars for shipping and just kind of roll that into your price. The way that it works for me is I include the price of shipping. And then if I'm at a fair, that price of shipping equates to kind of hopefully spread, spreading out my booth price across my pieces. So instead of shipping, it becomes my, my kind of booth fee to make sure that I cover myself there. Uh, and again, like I try to keep my prices consistent. So when you're doing your pricing formula, keep in mind where you're going to be selling and how to like make that make sense for you across all of the places that you're selling. So you're not like having people looking at your website while you're at a fair and asking why things are like $20 cheaper on your website. I was, I was just about to bring that up. I was at a craft store, the fiber festival in April here in Alaska. And I was going from table to table and there was this group of, you know, Karens, we'll call them, uh, nearby me. And I heard one of them remark, oh, well, I know this is actually cheaper on Etsy, so I'm just going to get it on Etsy. Um, and it was, it was really, like, it was just rude, you know? And unfortunately, we're going to deal with these very rude individuals when we're trying to sell. We'll, we'll go into Etsy reviews in a bit. Yeah. So what I would say is that the way that I treat friends and family is they get wholesale price. I get a lot of remarks from friends and family who are also artists that they tell me that I'm underpriced. And I just want to say, do not base your pricing off of what other people tell you. They don't know what your process is. They don't know what your costs are. So like, you don't even have to listen to me. Honestly, I don't know what your process is. I'm just telling you what works for me and what the standard is. But your situation might be completely different and there's actually not a wrong way to do this. Um, that's how I feel about it personally. I think that we should try to stay similarly priced to each other so that we are all valued. And so like, I think looking at other people's prices is a perfectly adequate way to go about it. I think that's fine if you're not comfortable with formulas or math, like you do you. Um, but I think that, you know, you're going to, it doesn't matter how you price. You are going to consistently hear you are priced too low and you are going to hear, oh, you are priced too high. And I have had the same thing happen with the same item at the same fair in the same day. And it's just the way that it is. You're going to get feedback and it's just a part of putting yourself out there. Yeah. And I I think it, you know, a part of that formula that you mentioned was costs and materials. And I really want to spend a little bit of time looking at material affordability because 
one of the issues in the grand scheme of the crafting world is the cost of supplies and how if you're for example I bought one of this one of the things that Jesse and I've kind of talked about and joked about you know I've bought a very cheap punch needle kit from Michael's for $15 whereas a similar kit would be much more expensive better quality kit but similar in the sense that I'll have a completed project and have everything I need um, may cost 30 or more dollars and I'll default to the Michaels because that's what's in my budget and then I'll have the needle break on me or I'll have the thing rip on me and then be discouraged from the craft. Whereas if I had gone with the thing from Etsy or the private seller, A, I would have higher quality supplies, but B, I probably also have a seller who's willing to give some guidance and answer questions. So I think it's really important that when we see these prices, we're looking at quality And I think customer service takes a huge part in that too. So my prices also include, you know, because I use that pricing schematic, if you will, I basically guarantee my my jewelry pieces. I mean, I I have never had anyone really take advantage of that. I'm hoping now that I'm saying something very publicly about it, I'm not like going to get people (laughs) trying. But I've had people run over my jewelry with their cars and I have made them a similar piece at a discount, basically. Like I haven't given them a free piece in that case, but I try to do what I would want done for me and I just offer human kindness as I'm able to. Some people can't afford to do that and for me like my hobby is supported and I have made money doing this. Um, At one point when I was a foster parent making stuff was my full-time income for a little while and not only was my full-time income but I mean I paid my bills with it. Well and just just kind of going back into and sorry to talk over you but just kind of going back into your formula and what you were talking about I've been listening to Anastasia Wilson's podcast, Making Magic, and one of the things that she's talked about is the integrity of selling beautiful work at a price that is an honest representation of the value of the work and not some sort of cheap trick to get others to buy it. And this was specifically when she was interviewing creators of Neutrino, and I think they cited somebody else for that comment, but still it it really was profound to me because I think that when we talk about crafts, there's so much more to that word. When we talk about art and craft, there is this integrity of authenticity. And are we really being authentic if we're underselling not only ourselves, but setting it up so that others have to undersell as well because we want to make the sale rather than sell the art. Yeah, I like, I really like hearing that because, you know, like I said, you can price how you want to and there is a lot of guilt which I think is unfortunate I think we need to explain why we price those things the way that we do and why we feel like we'd like to all be similarly priced I don't think there should be a shame factor there but you have to remember like when you're doing a craft you have all this cumulative knowledge that has come down from someone some source either you've really worked hard on your own to figure it out or you've utilized these books or you have this ancestral knowledge that has come down and that is so valuable in a non-monetary way and so the idea of monetizing can feel cheap but then if you're monetizing and then undervaluing it's like a it's very cheapening I think to to not put a, a worthwhile monetary value on that yeah absolutely and you know I know we've talked a little bit we're jumping around a lot obviously we're both very passionate about this topic but just kind of going into those cheap introductory kits Uh, Jesse, I know I mentioned it, but I wanted to reopen that door for you to jump off of. Yeah, so actually when you mentioned specifically the punch needle kit, I started with a Michaels kit. And I had that same punch needle. And so the first thing I did when I taught my class was I researched what tools would work best. And I found the one that I liked, and that was the one that I had available for sale during my class. And that's like it made – when you have the right tool – it really makes the craft feel easier, more fun, and more accessible. Unfortunately, like sometimes those are outside of your price range. And a lot of the big box stores, they just don't carry high quality materials. Sometimes they do. Most of the time you're getting entry level stuff and sometimes it's functional and sometimes it's just not. Uh, there's some plier kits I can think of at Michael's that are fine, things like that. But like, man, that that first punch needle, it fell apart in my hand. I think I finished half the project and needed to hop on Etsy and order a new tool. Right, right. Well, I, I think it goes into, you know, for those of us who have grown up in lower income 
households, when we would receive those kits, there was this like sense of scarcity, right? Where it's, I don't want to use the kit because I don't want it to break. I'm not good at art, so I'm not going to do it. And our sense of worth really tends to get, you know, because we're in a capitalist society and what we're able to produce and what we're able to accomplish. And so as kids, when we're given these really shitty craft kits that don't work properly or that fall apart or that break, as kids, we don't have that executive functioning in our brain yet to distinguish, you know, logically of, no, it's how the kit was put together or built. It's, this is me inherently incapable of doing this. And so that carries forward with us and we start to develop this sense of imposter syndrome, which I think as adults influences how and why we price the way we do when we're doing crafts. It's, I obviously am capable of failure, so this isn't going to be good enough. This is going to be just as bad as that shitty kit I got as a kid. Somebody else is going to be gifted failure from my thing. Yep, and that's really relatable. Again, I'm going to pull it back to Punch Needle because that's my latest thing. But I tried Latch Hook as a kid, and I had the crappiest Latch Hook kits. I mean, like, the cheapest of the cheap. And my Latch Hooks always broke, and it's just like what you were saying. So when I started Punch Needle, I had an anxiety about it that I hadn't really put, like, a name to. And once I was able to do it, I was surprised. And when the tool broke, though... Like you said, as an adult, I was able to say, okay, well, this is just a bad tool. And look, I've managed to finish half of this with a bad tool. Like, <laughs> I'm clearly not that bad at this. But me as a kid, I would have had that broken tool and been like, well, I guess I suck because I yeah. can't even use the materials. Yeah. And it, it's it's the other thing, too, though, is those kits come with such shoddy instructions. It's like, how well can you follow poor instructions and how well can you execute those? I keep going back to that lizard keychain with the pony beads that we talked about in the first episode. I can't tell you how many of those I was gifted and I could not figure out how to put it together. To this day, I don't bead. Uh, yeah, I think the only reason I ever figured out how to do those was because we did them at Girl Scout camp and like the base sat over you and we're like, the ne- put the next bead on. Okay, oh. now you're going to do this. Um, it's like intro to beading, but you make a lizard. Uh, so the other thing, actually, as you were talking, it occurred to me. So another thing that I did as a child is I would just get art supplies and I just wouldn't use them. They were coveted, you know, like they just sat in a closet. And as an adult, I have had to force myself to not be that way. I guess I have some really nice like dyed fabrics and things for doing embroidery on. And I have had to absolutely force myself to use them. Like they are especially with really special or expensive, like my first set of Prismacolors, I had to have them for school and using them for school, I felt guilty using these because, I mean, that was back before, you know, you could get them on Amazon. So my only option was my local Michaels. Yes, I used the coupon, but they're marked up way high. Yeah. And so there was like an over $100 worth of colored pencils. And my art school self could not even afford these, but needed them for school. And I felt so bad using them. It's, it's that sense of I'm not worthy of something this nice or of this high quality. And it's it's not okay. You guys, we are all deserving of the proper tools to express ourselves. Absolutely. Speaking of like materials and things, there is also this sort of trend of, I guess, how can you say like the perceptions of different types of class uh, or different types of crafts? And I was wondering, Jesse, if you could talk a little bit more about your experiences as a wire wrapper. Oh man. Oh man. This is, this is a good one. So there are a lot of perceptions out there in particular, I find about like wire wrappers and like people who blow glass or like, you know, there's almost like we're seen as like the festival goers, you know, like I feel like people come up to my booth and they are shocked when I am not like a hippie. I mean, basically, like, like they are shocked that like, I usually go up to events, I'm usually pretty well put together. You know, I, I, if I'm at a fair, I'm obviously dressed appropriately for a fair, but they don't expect like, tiny female, for, they, for one thing, a lot of the times, which is weird, it's like, seems like the wire wrappers I know are pretty dispersed across all of the spectrums of gender uh but they don't expect you know female presenting small human I don't know why that's a thing but I get that a lot where they're just not expecting me to be what I am you're not the brawny masculine viking yeah metallurgist yes (laughs) (laughs) um and it's also seen as being I mean I've had people say things like essentially calling it a trash art which is mind-blowing for how much money I've invested into it and 
how much I own in rocks and how much metal can cost when you start getting into silver and gold, which I can't work with gold, but I do work with silver. And I've had people act like my, my, my craft is like, it's almost like they think it's like perler beads or something. (laughs) Well, it it just makes me think about how the things that are considered more highbrow or the things that you see, you know, these very pristinely well put together people, the the crafts that they tend to be pursuing are those very formulaic prescribed ones of like cricket, I always want to call it cricket, cricket crafts or, you know, um, tumbler crafts, those very, let's follow this printout, let's follow this step-by-step instruction where there's not much diversity within that individual craft and it doesn't take a whole lot of creativity. It's like, you know, you plug in this into this part of the formula and this and this, and then you end up with a tumbler that says, you know, gone fishing or whatever. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I just feel like there's just certain, certain crafts have different just expectations of like who you expect to be making it. And like there's highbrow and lowbrow like thoughts about it. In fact, I've even been or I've, I've seen craft fairs that are at, literally called highbrow crafts and lowbrow crafts. There's one that I saw in Northampton, Mass, and I like to think, I think it was tongue-in-cheek. I think it was (laughs) tongue-in-cheek, and I think it was more like, oh, we are lowbrow, and we're like, you know, kind of like a a shout against capitalism in some ways, I think was their whole thing. But like, when I saw that, I was a little cringy, because someone that, someone I love uh, told me that I should apply to it. And there was a little bit of me as the person who is the wire wrapper and who has been in that position of having people tell me that I'm lowbrow was a little taken aback when I first had them say, oh, you should go to the lowbrow craft fair. <laughs> <laughs> um, Triggered. <laughs> but it's interesting because also, like, you'll have, like, glass. So, like, glass blowing is almost like, so, like, there's, like, a hierarchy of glass from what I've noticed in the way people perceive yeah. it. So, like, lamp work and even like glass blowing can be seen as kind of low brow in some ways. Well, it, or it depends, but like yeah. I've seen it as like people will treat it as like, oh well, like that's that looks easy, so I guess it's probably not that much which is expensive and it's really hard to learn. But right. then you get into like stained glass and people are like, Oh, that's a that's a special craft. Like well, they make windows out of that. Yeah, and that, that's what I was gonna bring up is the fel- felting class we were at right now. I don't know if you ever heard, but the women at the table next to us were specifically talking about stained glass and how like their feelings, the connotation around what they were saying was very, oh, oh, oh yes, the stained glass, we do it. Oh, oh, oh. You know, and it's like, okay. Whereas I did like stained glass is like, that's the only glass craft. I've, it's so weird that there's that perception because it's easier than the other two that I mentioned. Uh, yeah. I did it at Girl Scout camp. We did stained glass. <laughs> like, we definitely weren't going to be glass blowing at Girl Scout camp. <laughs> but yeah, so talking about these craft fairs though it's interesting because I was googling earlier and one of the things I pulled up was that there are over 5.4 million cricket crica whatever users in the world right now and when I googled the number of tumblr crafts stores or businesses there's no actual number because not everybody's logging themselves as a tumblr specific but when I googled it in Etsy I could not stop scrolling I ran out of time before I ran out of people selling tumblers. That is insane. And the issue is that there is all this propaganda that you can turn this particular craft into a business. Yep. And I've actually seen it. So in some of my craft groups, we see it where someone will be like, okay, so I have my business page ready and I have all the stuff that I need. Now I need to learn how to use my Cricut. And I'm there and I'm like... I'm sorry, I feel like you missed steps one through five. I just, because there's an end cap at Michael's that has the cups, that has the cricket, that has the glitter, that has, you know, everything that you need to do whatever, and, you know, or like the cup press that they have for the doing the mugs now and all that <laughs> stuff, uh, and they have it on an end cap with everything that you need, and they totally market it as, oh, hey, start a home business. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with starting a home business, but it's just... It feels a little bit backwards to go business first and then craft. Yeah. Well, and it, it just goes back into that sense of feeling like a multi-level marketing scheme yep. where it's it's not about the quality. It's about, let's say that I'm a business owner. Let me check this box in my life so I can say that I have value because I'm selling something and I'm doing something. And it's it shouldn't be about that. Yep. Exactly. So while we're on the topic of capitalism, we just can't avoid talking about Etsy. Not that I'd want to, because um, 
you know, I was on Etsy a long time ago. Uh, I was on Etsy long before I was successful. I've had actually a few forays into Etsy. Uh, but one of my first ones, you know, I didn't sell anything. It was well over before I was doing wire wrapping. I think I was doing just beading and stuff. And it, my pictures were terrible and just nothing took off because I, I just didn't know what I was doing. And that's fine. Like, that's how it starts for a lot of people. You just kind of dive in and try it. When I got into, you know, my actual try at Etsy where I actually put effort in and marketed myself and and took better pictures or try in the beginning I'll admit my pictures weren't that great but (laughs) but I I put effort into them and that does still come across so I was there from the time that like they had what were called treasury lists and you could curate these lists of your and other people's items and there was a whole like very social media interactive way of being on Etsy Etsy was a different beast back in the day I'm aging myself with that statement. (laughs) Um, But no, but for real, like Etsy has gone, and I can just say this as a seller, it has gone from feeling very much like a home where the forums, you could just kind of sit there and chat with people and it felt very small. And now it just feels super hyper corporate. And I think that what that comes down to now is that, you know, they are actually publicly traded now. They entered the stock market in April of 2015 with an initial public offering of $16 a share. So when they did that, I feel like that's really when we started to see the tides change. A couple years before that, in like 2013, they actually made it so that designers could start working with vendors to produce their designs. And it was really controversial. And I think it even still is, honestly. There's a lot of people that are still pretty upset about it. I would say probably mostly people that have been there for a long time. I personally don't have an issue with that if it's done in the way where like a designer is working with a company to produce their designs. I don't have a problem with that because you're still supporting an individual and you're supporting their business. Like graphic designers have historically like gone through like print companies and things. And I think that Etsy just made way for people that create in that way and who were maybe trying to find other ways to do it. Like I don't, I personally don't. I understand why people have a problem with it. What I have noticed since them being publicly traded, however, is they've now gone to where there's this weird gray area because of, you know, allowing production partners, there's now just straight up people buying stuff on Wish and Uh, selling it through Etsy or stealing designs. And they're not even really selling that item. They're doing the Alibaba thing where they are taking a picture of someone else's item, mass producing it in a factory overseas, and it's like some shoddy, not really exactly what it is. And then they get a bunch of bad reviews and they close the shop and they pop up with another one. And Etsy now, because they're publicly traded and they're all about the money... As far as I can tell, I mean, this is my perspective again, but I'm not seeing them squashing those as quickly as they would have maybe done in the past had they not been worried about shareholders. Sure. And and one thing, listeners, that I do want to say, and we meant to do this at the top of the episode and just got so heated and so in our feels, uh, but capitalism is a very big, broad topic. The survey that we sent out covers very different aspects of capitalism and crafting. And these are the types of things that we're getting into that we can honestly spend entire episodes on each aspect that we're covering. And depending on the feedback we get, uh, we may actually do some deeper dives on some of this stuff and maybe even have guests. You know, it would be super cool to get somebody from Etsy's like company to put their input on it. Um, But yeah, so these are our views specifically, our experiences specifically, uh, but we're also sharing some of the firsthand experiences from the crafters who have willingly contributed anonymously to these surveys. Yep, absolutely. And so I personally am no longer selling on Etsy. It was a very hard decision because with Etsy, you know, you do have the built-in marketing. You do have, however, what I was seeing and that I know a lot of other crafters are seeing, you know, the very successful crafters are always going to be the very successful crafters. There's just some people that their stores are so big on Etsy that they will never fall below a certain point. Right. Because they've made Etsy so much money that Etsy will boost them until they stop making the money. I was in the middle of the situation where I feel like I had months that were really, really great and I had months that were really crappy. I did make Star Seller a few months in a row. So I wasn't doing terrible But I'm not worth boosting. But some of the shops that sell the Chinese crap that's similar to mine, um, they would get boosted over me. And my sales plummeted. I mean, absolutely tanked. When I had foster children, I was making probably $3,000 a month on crafts. About half of that was from Etsy, which is not 
it's not like what big crafters are making. It's not, you know, but it is a substantial amount. And there's many people who would love to make that amount. It's not what I made every month of the year, obviously. Um, but like to go from that to two sales a month, the problem was not with me, frankly. Like even though my SEO wasn't always the best and everything, it just, it, I didn't change anything really about the way I was doing things. It was something wrong with Etsy. And I'm not the only person that I know that's had that experience. And so for me personally, between the moral issues that I'm now having with seeing them allow people steal things, allowing like people to come on and sell things that are clearly are not handmade, like fidget spinners. Right. I just, I personally can't be a part of it anymore. And I understand, you know, I understand why people are upset with them. There is the raising of the fees. And I, I we can get into that in another episode at some point. And I understand like there was like that, um, boycott. Yeah, there was the boycott. And I participated in it, not entirely intentionally, just because of the issues that I have with it, not because of the reason why they were actually having the boycott, which was the raising of the fees. And I would like to actually hear from some listeners in our comments about what your opinion is on Etsy raising fees, because how much do you think that ties in with them being publicly traded? Do you feel like they really need that increase in fees? Because for years, from what I remember, Etsy didn't raise fees for a long, long, long time. And then they became publicly traded. And I think I remember them raising the fees around that time. And then I think they're doing it again now. So like, how much do you think that relates? Well, and also, and I'm shifting gears just a little bit, but one of the things I think about going off of what you were saying, Jesse, is I saw your quality of work increasing. You know, the, the types of stuff you were putting out was becoming more intricate, more detailed, more beautiful, just, I, I got to a point where I was, like, obsessively looking at your Etsy, right? Aw. And this is not me just, like, tooting your horn, uh, but I will toot it. Toot, toot. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, no, really, like, it, it's, if you think about the impact psychologically that that has to be having on crafters, and I think we see it in the different Facebook groups and Insta posts and on the other craft podcasts that we listen to as sellers who are putting out amazing stuff are taking these emotional and like, you know, self-esteem hits because Etsy is not boosting them. And so even though their quality of work is getting better, even though their marketing skills are getting better, even though their pictures are getting better, the sales aren't keeping up. And it's because of the algorithms, the big algorithm. And I'm glad you mentioned that because actually that kind of ties back into our original topic that we were talking about was pricing things you know I was on Etsy and like you're right my work has gotten better with time my prices for Etsy had to stay the same because at a certain point my sales just stalled now I will say if I I tested this and I actually dropped prices enough and sales also stopped so that's another thing to mention too is that you know like if you price too low people will view your work as being shoddy or questionable where it's like oh what's wrong with this exactly So to like have that happen was very demoralizing where I'm like, I'm better than ever. My prices are clearly fair because I am underpricing myself at this point. Like I am, I was still using my formula, but I hadn't raised my hourly rate for myself in a long time, which with, you know, you're supposed to, you are supposed to raise your hourly rate at least every three years, if not every two to one year. And you you guys have to pay yourselves. You guys are working. Pay yourselves. Yep. Exactly. But like Etsy, like I went from that to like nothing. It just didn't matter. So it's not like I was pricing myself out of the market or anything like that. They just stopped sending traffic my way. And I'm not the only person that like even on years where I had it be slow in the beginning, holidays were still busy. Crickets. Crickets over holidays. Crickets before Mother's Day. Crickets before Christmas. Still lots of in-person sales. Still lots of interest on social media. Just not a lot happening on Etsy. And I just can't believe that that's an accident. I refuse to believe that that's an accident. Not with as many people as I know who had the same problem at the same time. Yeah. And it's interesting because one of the questions we asked in the survey that we sent out was, do you sell your crafts or your skills related to crafts? And 36.6% said yes. 34.1% said no, and 27.3% said I have seriously thought about it or wanted to. And I am interested to hear, A, how the experiences of those who said yes have been, especially if they sell on Etsy, what the reasoning behind the no is for those who said no, and then what's holding back the people who are considering it and why they haven't taken that jump yet. 
because I, I do think a big portion of it has got to be related to Etsy and pricing, just based on the other responses we've seen. Yeah, and I think another thing to keep in mind with Etsy too is that the people were saying you absolutely don't want to price too high and you don't want to price too low. And looking at other people's prices can be helpful. However, you don't know if just because you're looking at their pricing if they're actually selling at that price. I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind. So like if they are selling cheap, you don't know if they're actually selling enough or if they're like actually making their money back. You don't know what their books look like. Right. And the same thing if they're priced high, like, okay, but look at the number of sales that they have and what those items are. Because most of the time when I look at someone's work who seems priced pretty high by my standards, I go through and I look and the 200 sales they have are generally not going to be that item or anything like that item. It's the middle of the road stuff that they seem to be selling. And I mean, we could do a whole episode about pricing and about how that works, <laughs> but just a, just a heads up to like, when you're looking at pricing, try to take it in context in terms of go look at the shop. Go look at what their general pr- price points are if you're looking at it as research for yourself. And also, like, we have this beautiful thing called Instagram. Use it to your advantage and look up their handle on Instagram. Who's tagging them showing that they have bought that stuff? You know, because I am very intentional with my Instagram. If I buy something from a local shop or from an independent seller, I'm always tagging them to show it off. Because A, I want to support local and small business But B, like, if it's good, I want my family to get it. You know, I want my friends to be jumping in on that. So the other thing that I want to touch on is just in terms of Etsy. How do you find handmade sellers now? So it's tough. I'm not going to lie. It can be tough. The first thing that I now do when I see something that I like, because I have almost been tricked into buying the Chinese crap. Uh, It's just how it happens or the stuff from wherever it's coming from overseas basically like it's it's just stuff that's coming from factories that they're ripping off designs and creating it because you know I mean we could get again into like all the issues surrounding capitalism and how it takes advantage of people in poor countries so I'm not trying to throw shade at any poor people here who are in a sweatshop situation not at all I'm just saying you know if you want to buy something you you and you're trying to buy from someone who's hand making it this is how you do it I just, I, it doesn't belong on Etsy, frankly, is my argument. I buy stuff from Wish all the time, and I'm pretty happy about the stuff that I buy because sometimes that's the only way you can buy it. We can make a whole nother discussion about the morality of Wish if you want, but I honestly, like, if I'm buying from Michael's, I'm probably buying it from the same factory anyways, to be frank, and I'm just overpaying for it. Well, it's interesting because one of the other questions we asked in the survey was, which outlets do you get your craft supplies from? And the number one was Michael's. And this was a question where you could click multiple. It wasn't just one. But the the highest one was Michael's, followed by the local yarn and craft store. So kudos, y'all. Woo! Then Etsy, then Joann's, then Walmart, then Hobby Lobby, then uh, Craft Markets, Amazon, um, and then Target, and then Wish, Alibaba was on there, and then there's a bunch of other ones randomly listed like eBay, Lovecraft, 123stitch.com, so yeah. Um, I, I think it is interesting to look at these craft supply sources because it's, in the groups that we're targeting have been specifically crafters, right, like experienced crafters. These tend to be the groups where it's people who have been at the craft for a long time or who have ADHD and have hyperfixated on it and they have done all the research in two minutes and then now they are practically experts. And so basically these responses I think are pretty consistent with that population with the emphasis being on that local yarn or craft store. Yep. And so what I would recommend is in terms of finding both, well, okay, let me, I'm going to back up a little bit. Etsy, what do they sell? What are you supposed to sell on there, right? I don't even know anymore. Yeah, exactly. So Etsy is a handmade vintage and and supply store. You can sell supplies on Etsy that is allowed. I see people get slammed for it in groups all the time because people forget that, yes, you can be a reseller of supplies on Etsy. So how are we finding the single mom in America who is rebuying, who is buying things and reselling them? Because frankly, like that's what a craft store does. They have vendors and they sell things like that is what a craft store does. She's just doing it from a a digital storefront. So how do we find those people instead of buying from China? And here's what I'm going to tell you. Go on Instagram. Yep. Reverse engineer. Look for what you're looking for on Instagram. There's lots of people like for me, I look for stone sellers. I look for hashtag lapidary. I look for hashtag stones, hashtag gemstones. 
you can filter out real human beings from, you know, anybody else. (laughs) And even then, like, I have, you know, I have friends who cut stones in India and I buy from them all the time. So I'm not opposed to overseas. I just want to make sure I'm buying from humans. And so if you have a a way that you want to purposefully buy things and you want to make sure that you're, you know, like, supporting people who are actually following Etsy's rules, that's the best way that i found is to just use your hashtags. My experience, so I'm a poly crafter. I've never sold, intentionally sold any of my handmade goods except for like the occasional commission. And even those, I didn't know what I was doing. But as far as like buying supplies, I almost only got my supplies from independent sellers on Etsy or local yarn stores because the quality was just that much better. It was, you know, I was getting supplies that I knew were going to work because of what other reviews said, you know, and I was getting it from people who obviously put time to put the best supplies together, you know, so when I started needle felting and wet felting and I bought those supplies from like Living Wool or Living Felt in Texas the the stuff that was sent I was like I not only have everything I need but I have more to where I could like mess around make a mistake and still get the project done yep and I think that that's important to note too is like if you're buying supplies from a supply store on Etsy you're buying from an individual who has curated what they are going to sell big box stores are not this careful about what they sell they will sell you what they can get cheap at wholesale price uh, from what I have found from independent sellers is they have those wholesale accounts, but they are particular about which companies they wholesale with. It's important to buy from them because, you know, you've got a single mom or whoever working out of their garage, doing all their own shipping themselves, and they have put money up front with wholesaler, like with, with these vendors that do wholesale. Yeah. And so they have an upfront investment. So when you're buying things, you are making sure that that money goes back into their pocket and you're supporting them instead of the big box store where it's the same concept, but you don't know about the quality of the materials. No one's curated it and you're not really putting food on anyone's plate directly. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think it's important that we as consumers of supplies or consumers of completed objects, we take a little bit of time to look into that. Because one of the questions we also asked kind of leading into that um, on the survey was whether or not as a buyer, do you intentionally try to buy from BIPOC, LGBTQIA, disabled, or other marginalized sellers? And interestingly, 70.5% of those who responded said yes. Now, there's reason to believe that people who complete uh, surveys in the first place are better people and more intentional in general. <laughs> no, I'm joking. But yeah, it's the responses were definitely interesting because the other response were no or... I do, but it's more like I go out of the way to try to avoid supporting bigots. And then everybody else was, it depends. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I think it, it, it is important, Jesse, like you're saying, to be intentional about who we are buying from. Yeah, absolutely. And there is absolutely the argument, and it's been said in the survey, that there isn't really any way to buy things in, in a responsible way under capitalism. There just right. isn't. I mean, no matter what you do, you're doing something wrong. But trying to do anything with intention, like I'm a firm believer that intention has energy, intention has meaning, and even the small waves that we can make, I think, mean something. Like if I can, within the system, I guess, because we're in the system, we can't not be in the system. It's really, it's just the way that the world works right now and it yep. sucks. I can make the decision to support a small business over supporting a box store. Sometimes I don't have that choice. Sometimes the supplies that I need are at the box store. Sometimes I'm under a crunch with a commission or something and I need to go buy something at the box store. Uh, Sometimes a material just isn't available from a, or you don't have a local store because you already live in an area that's like, never mind a craft store, you're in a food (laughs) desert. Like that exists. Um, So like those people, like I would not, like there's just different circumstances for all of us. And some people, the only thing that they can afford is Michael's and that's perfectly valid too. Yeah, yeah, and that, that was the other, I'm really glad you brought that up because that was the other thing I was going to say. Some of the comments we saw, and this this is my lived experience, is you have that intention to be integral or have integrity when you're crafting and creating and selling, but due to other limitations or lack of certain privileges, you can't, you know, it's just not available to you. 
one of the things that I've been looking into is opening up a brick and mortar shop. And when I pulled my, um, obviously like surveys, uh, but when I pulled the, uh, my Facebook friends and family about what would make a local yarn shop or a local craft store more accessible to persons with disabilities, one of the things they talked about is how cluttered big box stores are and how inaccessible just from a physical standpoint these businesses are. And so they have to get it online, whether it's Amazon or Etsy, and it, it's that limits their options that much more. Yep. And I, I just think it's really important because we come down to like, you know, I think a lot about this now, but like people talking about like disposable straws, it drives me nuts because there's so many people who are disabled who have to use one use products, who have to use things that are disposable. And there's like this shame associated with it. I just want you to know, like I have my own things that are, I do have to do for what to outside people would seem like questionable meanings. I put my intention where I can, but sometimes, you know what? Your circumstances are different than anyone else's. You know your own circumstance and you do what you gotta do. If you're making stuff, I'm just proud of you for doing it in the first place. Oh, <laughs> I love that. Yeah. But there's no judgment, you know? Like, I mean, this is stuff to keep in mind, but if you are at a point where you don't even have spoons at the end of the day, dude, like, buy your craft supplies where you can, man. Yeah, and it, it's interesting because the other thing, we, we have so many questions. Uh, which craft supply seller do you consider to be the worst? And honestly, 61.4% said Hobby Lobby. And I'm not surprised. I'm not either because I I just had a feeling. Yeah. And then followed by Walmart. And Walmart was tied with Gish. Or Gish. Wish. (laughs) Sorry. For those of you who don't know, I'm a Gisher. And so Gish is very prominent in my brain right now as we're gearing up for the big hunt in August. But Hobby Lobby at 61.4%. Walmart at 13.6, Wish at 13.6, Alibaba at some, oh no, Michael's at 2.3. Oh, look, this this is fancy. And then Target. And yes, I have some feelings about Target right now. Oh, I guess I should talk about those feelings, huh? Yeah, what so, what is up? Like, I gave her a look, just so you know. I, I know that the microphone can't pick up on my look, but still it was a look. So for those of you who listened to our first episode, you know that crocheting is like my bread and butter. And it's what I've been doing for a hot minute. And when Target recently launched their spring collection, it included crocheted and macrame bags. And I posted this on Instagram. There's a picture of the price tag of one of the crocheted backpacks that they are selling and they're selling these bags for like 20 to $30. The granny square style bag that they posted should not be ethically selling for less than 60 to 70 Oh, wow. Realistically. A, because of all the color changes and the amount of work that that involves. B, the amount of time it takes to make. And you cannot machine crochet. So you cannot yep. recreate crochet with machines. Crocheting is a very yarn consumption or consuming process unlike knitting um, which is why knitters are able to financially be a little bit more like luxurious in their yarn choices crocheting does not lend itself to that and so when I saw that I was actually furious and I'm not even a seller of crocheted goods but I, I knew that that would have a negative impact on those who crochet and sell crocheted goods and it makes me feel like Target which has been in some weird like territory before with different topics and different social justice issues but it made me feel like they were grossly overstepping this time Mm -hmm. gotcha wow I did not actually know that yeah it's I feel like it was definitely a stab in the face of the people who tend to probably shop at Target a lot for their other home goods. So, because I liked Target. There's a lot of things I like about Target. That makes me really upset because there's definitely some things, you know, obviously, I've, I've, you've seen my Facebook posts about some things about Target. Um, but, like, the fact that, like, it makes me happy that we have mainstream LGBTQ stuff. Like, the fact that we're at that point where you could have pride flags at the front of a store yeah. anywhere. And the fact that Target puts that section at the front of the store is yeah. huge. There's other issues that I have with that. Like, the fact that they're not a 
you know, they're not an LGBTQ run company and they're selling these things and profiting is a little problematic, but also like how cool that we're at that point that it's being monetized. I have, I have a, it's too Monetized and normalized. And normalized. Like it's just in the store that everyone shops at to like buy their milk and their vitamins. Yeah, because like it or not, Target is an influencer. They do influence a lot of trends. They do influence what people buy and consume and what people deem as the clean and normal and appropriate because this is where people shop when they want to avoid Walmart. And so this is the standard of that like typical WASP middle income person. And so if they're being exposed and inundated with, you know, pride flags and tutus and all that fun stuff, then that means that there's that much closer to the mark of acceptability. Yeah. And again, another thing that was brought up to me too by a friend of mine who's trans is they were like, yeah, actually Target was one of the first places to have inclusive bathrooms in a very public way, which is like, okay, I kind of, I kind like, that's, that's actually like a thing. Like, thank you for actually doing something and not just selling the pride flag. So like, it makes me a little less like, okay, you're actually doing something towards inclusion. And I've actually heard things about their like company policies and things that are very inclusive obviously they're still a big company they still have problems it's the nature of our society and speaking of bathrooms inclusivity all that fun stuff since this episode will be airing during june which is pride month i do want to point out there is an app called refuge r-e-f-u-g-e which is a map of safe restrooms for transgender intersex and gender non-conforming individuals and what i like about this is you can go through if you encounter one of these bathrooms you can actually add it to the location and verify it um helping create a safer environment for all of our trans non-binary intersex and gender non-conforming friends i'm so glad that i brought that up (laughs) yeah it was perfect it's awesome (laughs) yay so yeah just kind of going back to the survey some stuff that we didn't cover was um if you're a seller what are your biggest challenges with making a sale and i do think this connects pretty closely with that price formula right where people are talking about advertising and growing from nothing without spending everything you have on marketing. Finding a buyer, which is marketing. Keeping products consistently stocked. Heck yeah, that is hard. Price, people want things to be cheap. Finding buyers. I sell patterns. The need for constant content publication and marketing makes me feel more like a content creator than a creative designer some days. The number of people who tell me, like, I'm on TikTok. I love TikTok. But the number (laughs) of people who are like, you should put your work on TikTok. I'm like, do you understand the amount of work that goes into producing a handmade product TikTok? It's a lot. Like, the amount of editing that goes into those. Like, watch one sometime, and I want you to count the number of cuts that it takes to make one. It's a lot of work. Yeah. Prices again, getting in front of the right audience, so marketing. I don't know what people ever want. Like I said, they give amazing feedback, then just walk away. I was selling a handmade, fully quilted baby quilt for $60 and ended up giving it away to a neighbor because no one wanted it. And that is super sad. So person who contributed that to our survey, thank you for giving that insight. And I'm really sorry that that was your experience. That breaks my heart because I've gone to, I mean, I've done a lot of fairs. And that's a perfectly reasonable price for a baby quilt. And I have seen them sell for far higher than that. So I don't know what was going on in that market, but it must have, oh, that's so, that's so sad. And that shouldn't have happened. Like that's, I'm so sorry. Another one, getting people to understand the value of my work as both a creator and a merchant. Crafting is one type of labor and merchanting is another. Yep. My staff and I deserve to be compensated for both. Ah, pricing. I tend to take commissions for yarn. In essence, I will make it for double the yarn needed. Finding people who can afford it. Mm -hmm. I could buy a hat at Walmart for $5. Comments like that made me stop selling. I don't have the executive function to market myself as much as you need to in order to make sales. I enjoy the crafting, but I hate the listing and describing and the actual sales pitches and all that stuff. Yeah, it's a lot of work that goes into this. Mm -hmm. One question we asked that I thought was super interesting is how much is too much for a pattern? And this answer was all over the board. And I'm also kind of curious, like, because we didn't really clarify but, like, what kind of patterns people were th- had in mind, I right. guess, if that makes sense. Because you have digital patterns, you have printed patterns, you have complex patterns, you have sewing patterns. For me, it changes based on what it, what it looks like. Well, and I, I think it's interesting because 
I was very intentionally vague with this question on the survey because when I hear other people talking, especially like newer crafters who are entering the world of crafting and haven't necessarily designed a pattern, I hear them talk about, oh, that's too much for a pattern Mm -hmm. without recognizing how much distinguishing actually goes into the pattern process because there is a lot of effort that has to happen. The amount of time I have made on making a single pattern is way more than on making the actual item. I'm making kits right now for embroidery and it's, you know, my artwork's already done. My work has not even begun at the point after having my artwork drawn because it has to be digitized. I have three different sizes for printouts that I'm including. I need to include a color chart if someone wishes to follow it. I need to include what stitches they're going to be using because they need to know, you know, if they're a straight up beginner, I want them to have those stitches and a how-to on how to do it. It is not just slapping something together. It's a lot of work and everything has to be clean and look good. I can't just scan in an image. No, I have to vectorize it and make it look really clean and crisp. It's a lot and I don't think the average person understands that at all. So thank you for kind of adding more light on that. No problem. Um, The other question I wanted to cover was what else do you want to say about capitalism and crafting? And remember, for those of you listening, we absolutely can and will go into some of these topics more in depth, especially if there seems to be a good, strong response to it. My grandma's listening and she's going to be like, oh, this is baloney. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, hey, grandma, thanks for the support. (laughs) Love you. But so these responses, I am going to read not all of them, but a pretty good chunk of them. Capitalism ruins everything, not just crafting, smiley face. (laughs) It puts us in the corner of feeling a need to monetize our hobby in order to offset the high costs of the hobby. Yep. Uh, The Etsy boycott was not a strike and people need to stop confusing the two concepts. Uh, I I actually do agree with that. Capitalism is poison. Crafting is healing. Try to ensure you minimize the poison in your life. I, I feel like I'll be friends with this person. I like that one. Who, whoever put this, if you actually listen, like, please private message us because I want to be your friend. You, you got good energy going on there. I wish more people would accept that a hobby doesn't have to be a hustle. I used to sell finished items and hated it. It drained my energy and creativity and I dreaded crafting for years, but I never had time to make what I wanted to make. I still have people tell me I should sell my items or demand to buy them. I appreciate the ability to sell my crafts. Okay, that's some good positivity going. Natural fiber materials are much more costly than synthetics. Crafting on a budget while using eco-friendly materials, regardless of your crafting style, is nearly impossible. Facts. As a natural dyer, yes, I can preach on this issue. Uh, The market has too many finished objects and not enough supplies. Okay. I think the more we see mass-produced crafts in the market from major retailers, Target, the harder it is. I didn't write this one, by the way. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm just like, I'm vibing with this one. The harder it is to charge reasonable amounts for handmade work. I think about knitting a sweater. The yarn alone is easily $80 plus. By the time you charge for the time, you're charging four to five times what someone can get at a top-of-the-line sweater from Amazon or even Nordstrom. The current economic climate plays a major role as well. If people are scared of the economy taking a downturn, they are less likely to splurge on art or will seek cheaper alternatives. Yes. Yeah, when Forever 21 started offering, like, fake Tree of Life pendants, like, it, I, I shattered. They were, like, $3 each or something insane. And I was like, are you kidding me? <sighs> there is no ethical consumption or selling under capitalism. It has absolutely ruined people's perception of the time and effort things take. Or supplies are going up in price, but they want $10 Walmart, Walmart shit. I kept reading that at shirt earlier. I'm glad it's shit. <laughs> I know I know, money is tight. I don't sell anymore, so it isn't the biggest concern for me. I tell people to pick up new crafts all the time. I think we should all have a skill, but no, capitalism doesn't always leave free time. I don't know. I would live in a commune, yes, if they could <laughs> exist and not become cults. Capitalism can suck my dick. <laughs> I like that. Crafting is only one piece of the process. Design is labor. Marketing your work is labor. Maintaining a website is labor. Packing and shipping is labor. Avoiding fair compensation for any of these elements is exploitation. That so much. That is why 
That is why you have a formula. That is my that is my argument for the formula right there. Yeah. I wish there were more dyers and spinners out there working with plant-based fibers because wool is the literal worst. I'm allergic, lol. That that's the person who put it. Um, yeah, so for all of our dyers and spinners, get on that. Looks like we have at least one person who would buy some non-wool-based yarns. There are, of course, positives and negatives because of big box stores. I have access to nice yarn, but I don't want to support Hobby Lobby. Dang it! Because of the internet, though, I have access to things I need to work on my crafts that otherwise would be unavailable to me at all. Yeah, living in a rural community can be rough with that. Capitalism forces this idea that if you're not selling your crafts, then why bother? Even my family and friends have pushed me to make my crafts into a business, despite the toll that it takes. I've worked as a seamstress off and on for years, but doing what you love as a job makes it a lot harder to do for fun. What patterns were lost in the Library of Alexandria? I wish that thought got elaborated on a little bit more, Mm -hmm. but... It feels like it's almost impossible to be a crafter when everything can be made so cheaply in such a large scale. It's heartbreaking on good days. Capitalism is the antithesis to crafting and creativity. If we didn't have to worry about how to monetize our hobbies to survive, a lot of us would be happier. Sometimes just making art is enough. I think crafting is getting more expensive. It's bad enough a lot of people don't have the actual time or bandwidth for creative pursuits. Getting materials at an affordable price takes hunting. Uh, The expectation that every crafting domestic doesn't have value unless it's a side hustle is a problem. This isn't happening to cishet men, but it happens frequently to fiber artists and sewists. We're stuck in a system that doesn't work in which skills are devalued. I don't know how to get out of that, but it sucks. Yeah, it does. And I think at some point we are going to do an episode on gender spectrum and crafting yeah and how that plays out and i think a a piece of that will be how things are valued absolutely and then my favorite capitalism bad crafting good (laughs) so yeah we this has been our episode on capitalism and crafting it has been obviously like we said earlier it is a very big broad topic it's very wieldy takes up a lot of space and time And there's a lot of opportunity for us to dig deeper into this. We really appreciate everybody who took the time to comment on this survey from our Instagram and the Facebook groups that we posted in. It was really great getting these insights and kind of seeing some of it echo and also challenge some of our beliefs. So yeah, absolutely. And it was it tied right in a lot of the opinions tied right in on things that we were already planning on talking about and seeing it. I remember right before I was like, yes, that is something we're touching on. So perfect. Yeah. So, well, this concludes our episode. Thank you guys so much for listening. If there's a episode topic that you'd like to hear us cover, or if you think you would make a great guest to join us in talking about something that you're particularly interested, passionate, or masterful in, please message us on Instagram. We'd love to hear from you or comment on our Patreon page. I'm Heather with Tangled Bee Crafts. And I'm Jessie with The Polar Night. And together we are the Not-So-Crafty Gorgons. Thank you for listening to the Not-So-Crafty Gorgons. We really appreciate your support and we couldn't do any of this without you, our listeners. Cover art is by Marina Soul Art. Music is by Naveed who is Amin Me on Fiverr. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review or rating on whatever platform that you prefer. And for exclusive content with the Gorgons, including tutorials, swag, and bonus episodes, subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash notsocraftygorgons. For episode previews and other updates, follow us on Instagram at not underscore so underscore crafty underscore gorgons.